This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, do you like sitting on the fence? Right? Do you like sitting on the fence? In a sense, do you avoid making decisions? Right? Do you avoid uh, actually doing what you need to do in terms of choosing a side? Now, I remember uh, many years ago, I spoke to this guy who was uh, agnostic. Do you know what agnostic is? Uh, agnostic is someone who is basically <clears throat> decided that they're committed to not believing whether there is a God or not a God. So an agnostic person basically says, I, I, I don't want to make a decision. I don't have enough information to make a decision. So I'm just going to be sitting on the fence. Now, I remember speaking to someone else as well. And they said to me, you know, uh, I'm not a Christian. I'm a free thinker. Then I remember saying to this person, I said, well, you know, if I could answer every question that you have about God, and I answered them satisfactorily, would you become a Christian? And they said, no. And I said, well, what's the point of being a free thinker if you're not actually free to think and make a decision? You're just basically using the word free thinker as an excuse for not deciding on whether God exists or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Now, in the background to today's passage, there is more and more opposition against Jesus. The tide of public opinion is turning against Jesus. So we've been going through Matthew chapter 1 to 11, and we can see that people are becoming more and more hostile to Jesus. They don't like what Jesus is saying, and they don't like what Jesus is saying about himself. So we begin here in chapter 12 with that background. Because it says in verse 1, At that time, Jesus went through the grain yards, grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, what is happening here is that Jesus and the disciples were walking on the Sabbath, and they were probably just going for an afternoon stroll. Because the rules for the Sabbath was that you couldn't walk more than 1,100 meters. So 1.1 kilometers, right? So obviously, they were just going for a stroll because if they had walked for more, the Pharisees would have accused them of breaking the Sabbath walking law rather than the eating the grain law, right? But as they were going for an afternoon stroll, the disciples, as you can see up on the slide, right, they're probably walking through or beside a grain field, and uh, they pick the heads of the grain, right? So you can pick the heads of grain, and then you just roll it in your hands, and you get the little seeds, right? So you know these seeds actually are what makes your popcorn, lah, okay? So they were popping this uh, corn in their mouth, okay, but it wasn't the popcorn, and... Uh, and they were just sort of using it like a... They weren't really... You can't really fill your stomach with it, right? You're just sort of like... Don't know, like chewing chewing gum, I suppose. You're just doing something in your hands and putting something in your mouth. And normally, people wouldn't notice this thing. But the Pharisees had to be spying on them and watching Jesus and the disciples very closely in order to catch them on doing something which was law-breaking on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees watched them closely and they said, Aha! Look! 
Your disciples are breaking the law because they are working on the Sabbath. Because effectively, when you are reaping and rolling the grain in your hand and popping in your mouth, it's kind of like working, right? I mean, not in a large scale thing, but in a small way. And apparently, uh, the Pharisees had set out a list of 39 things that you could not do on the Sabbath, and one of which was reaping grain. Right? So technically, the disciples were breaking the law according to the Pharisees. Now, Jesus could have easily just said, oh, you know, okay, look, look, you know, they're not really farmers, we're not really working, they were just sort of incidentally going through, you know, rolling some of the heads of grain on their hands and, and putting it into their mouth. But if you look at, look at the passage, you'll see that Jesus doesn't do that. He actually uses this incident to confront the Pharisees, to show them who he really was. And what Jesus says in a nutshell was, look, look at David. David went into the house of God and he ate the bread that only the priests were meant to eat. Why was David allowed to do this? Because he wasn't just any old David. He was King David. He says, look at the priests. The priests work every Sabbath in the temple, doing the sacrifices, looking after the temple. Why is it they are not accused of breaking the Sabbath? It is because they are priests working in the temple. So Jesus' point, if you look up here on the slide, was that he is greater than King David. He is greater than the priest, but more than that, he is greater than the temple itself. And he says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Because of the identity of Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, look, if King David is not accused of breaking a law, if the priests are not accused of breaking a law, then in the same way I am not accused of breaking a law because I am greater than David, greater than the temple, greater than the priest, greater than the Sabbath itself. Now in verse 9 to 14, things don't get any better. The Pharisees could have turned around and said, yes, Maybe Jesus is different. Maybe Jesus is greater than King David. Maybe Jesus is greater than the temple. But you notice that actually the Pharisees' attitude to Jesus is entrenched. Instead of coming over to Jesus' side, they dig their heels into the ground and they become even more stubborn and hardened against Jesus. So what happens in verse 7 and verse 8, right, onwards, sorry, verse 9 onwards, is that they go from the grain fields, going on from that place, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're not asking him a neutral question. They're not really interested in the truth. They're just looking for a reason 
to catch Jesus and to accuse him of breaking the law so that they can discredit him. In the same way here, the Pharisees are always now looking at a way to discredit Jesus and to bring him down in the eyes of the public. Now Jesus here could have easily walked away. He could have easily given an answer. He could have gone into some theological discussion. But look at what Jesus does. Again, he he brings the discussion back to who he is. In verse 11, he says, If any of you had a sheep and it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how to kill Jesus. Now, when we understand this passage, it is so deep, right? It is, it's like, it's so full of things happening. Right? So, Jesus says, look, if you had a sheep, and this apparently happens quite often, the sheep falls over, right? And the sheep cannot come up, get up by itself, right? It's, it's like not your, like your cat or a dog, you know, like sort of like very easy to get up. Right? get stuck there. But you notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, if your sheep, if one of your sheep falls into the ditch on the Sabbath day, what would you do? As a Pharisee, even though you say, yes, it's work, right? You would still do good and help the sheep come out of the ditch so that it wouldn't die or it wouldn't get injured or you wouldn't lose your sheep. In the same way, Jesus says, if you would do good to your sheep, then surely helping a man doing good on a Sabbath is something worthwhile and praiseworthy and good. Because a man is more valuable or a human being is more valuable than sheep. But the distinction is not just the sheep or a man, right? You notice the way that Jesus speaks is very sharp. He says, it is your sheep because you are personally interested in that sheep. So you help that sheep. But here, this human being who is not really belonging to you, you don't really care to look after that sheep. Now Jesus here could have waited until the very next day to heal the man with his hand, you know, shriveled away. But Jesus instead chooses to do good on the Sabbath. And then what do the Pharisees do? They plot to kill Jesus. There's something fundamentally wrong here. Here are these Pharisees accusing the disciple of rolling a couple of heads of grain and popping it into their mouth like popcorn. Here is Jesus healing a man and the Pharisees get angry with them and at the same time, on the very same Sabbath, what are the Pharisees doing? They are plotting to murder. There's something wrong here, right? Because what is murder compared to eating popcorn? What is murder compared to healing a man of a shriveled hand? In many ways, as we look at this, it just shows us how very wrong the Pharisees were 
Because here was Jesus, and through his actions, and through his words, was greater than David, greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath. He was God. But the Pharisees, instead of being open to examining who Jesus really was, decided to murder him. Right? They accused him of breaking the Sabbath, but they themselves break it in a wicked way, in wanting to murder someone. Now, I'm going to continue on with the narrative, because if not, the, the, the passage will be too long. So I'm going to skip the, the verse 15 to 21, but I'm going to look at what exactly happens after that. So in verse 22, then... They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when you look at this uh, passage, you will think that actually this man is very pitiful. Uh, He's demon-possessed. Not only is he demon-possessed, he's blind. Not only is he blind, he's mute, he can't speak. He's blind, he can't speak, and he's demon-possessed. Now, to be blind and mute is bad enough, right? Because you can't heal these things. Uh, one of my uh, dad's golfing friends, he's got a very serious eye problem, and he, he, he can't see anymore. He's a very rich uh, architect. He designed some of uh, the shopping centers in Singapore, he still can't see. Uh, I was on the MRT the other day and I, there were three people in front of me and they were signaling with hand signals to each other and I realized that they were mute. They couldn't speak. They were using sign language. Couldn't be healed. So when Jesus has brought this person, you say that this poor man has a trifecta of bad things happening to him. Right? He's demon-possessed, blind, can't speak. But actually, when you look at this passage, uh, I think that the way we're supposed to understand uh, this man is that he actually really has one problem which leads to the other two problems. He doesn't have a trifecta of three separate problems, but it's more like he has one problem which leads to the other problems. It is his demon possession which has led to his blindness and his muteness. I think that's the way we're supposed to read the passage. Because Jesus is said to not just heal him, but cast out the demon, right? That's the main accusation. That is the main heart. That's what's at play here. It is the demon possession which has caused a person's blindness and muteness. And Jesus brought before this person, astonishes the crowd because he solves this person's problem, which is unsolvable. The demon possession, the blindness, the muteness. It is so astonishing that the crowd look at this man and say, we've never seen this before. Is this the son of David? Now, what does it mean when they say that? What are they saying? What are they open to? What possibilities are they talking about? Well, the son of David, if you look up here on the clip, right, is uh, literally saying that this is the Messiah, the Christ. Is he fulfilling the prophecy of God that he spoke of in 2 Samuel 7, where he told David that there will be one who would come from his line, who would be ruler and king for eternity. 
that forever and ever the throne of the house of David will be established through this person. So that's what they're really saying. They're saying, Jesus, is he the one who is the Christ, the everlasting Messiah? So if you look at this diagram, right? So I think the diagrams are quite helpful. So if you look at this diagram. So basically, the crowd, through seeing what Jesus has been doing, are open to the possibility that this is who Jesus is. The Messiah, the Christ, greater than King David, greater than priest, greater than temple, the Lord of the Sabbath. But as we look at the passage, what is astonishing is that the, the Pharisees, instead of coming to this position, the, the position of the crowd, they say in verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they heard not of the miracle, but when they heard what the people were saying, they said, It is by Beelzebul, prince of demons, that this fellow drives up demons. Now, you can see there's a huge difference, right, between what the crowd are seeing in Jesus and what the Pharisees are seeing. Now, don't forget, the Pharisees did not just see Jesus casting out the demon, making the blind man see, making the mute person talk. Remember, they've been spying on Jesus right from the beginning, right? They've been, they, they've probably seen Jesus heal many multitude of people. They've seen Jesus cast out multitude of demons. He'd seen Jesus and heard of Jesus raise people from the, the girl from the dead or the bleeding woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. But yet, in spite of all the evidence in front of them, they say that Jesus is Beelzebul, which literally means the Lord of the Flies. Right? He's like Satan. They disrespect him. You notice the way that they speak of Jesus. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow dries up demons. You notice the word there, this fellow, right? It literally means this one. Uh, in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus is not even a teacher, uh, a leader, or, a, or anything. He's just this fellow. Right? They won't even speak of him. Now, the conversation then turns to Jesus warning the people and the Pharisees, and this is where it applies to us. I think we have to take to heart what Jesus says here. He said, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city and household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan dries out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? so then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, Jesus' point is, it is illogical, illogical to say that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. Because a kingdom which is at war with itself, civil war, destroys itself. So you just have to follow the news today, right, in the news. So, you know, you look at uh, places like Somalia in the Horn of Africa. 
it's been that civil war for like the last decade, right? The whole country is like destroying itself. Uh, you look at Syria. You know, you all follow the news in Syria, right? Where, you know, there's a civil war where the factions from America, factions from Russia, they're all fighting and backing different factions within the army and the whole country is being destroyed. Because Jesus didn't just cast out demons once in a while, he was going around casting out demons everywhere and anywhere among the Gentiles, among the Jews, every single time. So the amount of damage that Jesus was doing against Satan was so great that if you say that he is just doing it by the power of Satan, it's like a civil war. It's, it's Satan destroying his own kingdom. The other point that Jesus makes is, look, if you say that I drive out Satan or I exorcise by the power of Satan, then how do your own exorcists drive out demons? Surely I'm doing a much bigger and greater job than they are. If I'm working by the power of Satan, then your people must be working by the power of Satan as well. Ridiculous, right? It doesn't make sense. It's only because they are your exorcists that they are driving out by the power of the Spirit of God. It's only because I am independent of you that I'm driving them out by the power of Satan. At the end of the day, it's just parochialism, right? It's, it's, just the, it's only because Jesus is not under their control or their party. But the right logic, and this is where we need to focus on, the right conclusion is in verse 28. But if it is by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? That is the conclusion of what we are seeing in the work of Jesus Christ. That is the right conclusion. Because Jesus has come in such a powerful way that it is, it is only because the Spirit of God is working in Jesus and the kingdom of God is breaking into this world that all this exorcism and all this healing can be done. So Jesus here uses a very profound parable, right? And this parable actually really bears us studying it. He gives us this parable which says in verse 29, or again, so the again here links back to verse 28, right? He's trying to explain how the Spirit of God is bringing the kingdom of God into this world by driving out demons, right? Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man then he can plunder his house. Now, I want you to consider for a moment, right, all the different elements of the parable. The strong man, the house, and his possessions. What is Jesus talking about here? So Jesus is coming. He is empowered by the Spirit of God to cast out demons and to bring the kingdom of God into this world. Then what he's really saying is that the strong man in this world is Satan, right? And the house or the domain is this world and all the people. And the possession that Jesus is talking about is the man who is blind and mute, right? So Jesus is the stronger man 
who comes into Satan's domain, the world, and he ties up Satan so that he can take away his possessions. He can take this demon-possessed man who is blind and mute away from Satan. You understand what I'm saying? Right? Okay. It's important, right? It's very important. Because what it means is that the way that Jesus views the world is not like a materialist way that we look at it today, right? You know, nowadays we look at the world and there's no spiritual warfare, right? It's all just materialism, right? In terms of science, everything is just physical, right? You know, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no evil, there's no wickedness, there's no black and white. Everything is just stuff. It's just material things. But the way that Jesus looks at the world is that there are actually that two great forces and two great kingdoms struggling against one another. The kingdom or the domain or the house of Satan and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has broken into this world through the power of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit and he's breaking into this world and the kingdom of God has come into this world. When we understand it that way, then we can understand why Jesus says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Because if there is a great struggle and a great war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, then you kind of like have to choose a side, right? You know, because you know when you're at war, there's no neutrality, right? You're either one or the other. You, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like the kingdom of God has come. If you're not on the kingdom of God's side, then you're part of the house of Satan. Uh, don't think for a moment that Satan is going to just leave you alone and think, okay, that's okay. We'll just leave that person alone, comfortable in their own, their own life. No. The passage actually says, that, in the, 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 that you belong to one domain or one power or another. And if you're not with the kingdom of God empowered by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you belong to the house of Satan, the strong man. Now, Jesus actually goes on uh, a bit more in this fairly long section and talks about how the Pharisees are like the evil tree. Right, the evil tree. Okay, you, you know, you all might be waiting here and thinking, okay, Andrew, I'm waiting to find out about this sin against the Holy Spirit, right? It's okay. I'll leave it for the Bible study leaders to discuss it with you. Okay? But if you look at the passage, the passage here, right, is actually showing that the, the, the willful sinfulness of the Pharisees is so great that there is no more hope for them. It's unforgivable that they can call black, white, good, evil. That the works of the Spirit of God can be said to be the works of Satan. But you notice at the last section, right, where it says, But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word or careless word they have spoken. For by, their, by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Now it's quite interesting because Jesus is actually saying that these empty words, these careless words of the Pharisees show that they have not thought through or considered the claims of Jesus. 
And by these words, it shows your attitude within your heart, whether you are good or wicked, or whether you are evil, or whether you are righteous. Now this is very important for us, right, as we consider, because it shows us that when you actually speak your words, it actually reveals who you are. Even your careless words. You know, usually you speak without thinking, right? So here it shows that Jesus is saying that the Pharisees have not considered, seriously considered the claims of Jesus. And they've already written Jesus off. And that happens to many people today, right? You speak to people, and before you even are given like five seconds to explain the Christian position, they've already decided, oh, you're wrong, right? You know, you're deluded. Uh, you, you don't know Jesus, uh, you know, I've heard enough of Jesus' fairy tales. But these are careless words. These are empty words. Uh, these are words which do not take into consideration the works of Jesus and the displays of who he really is. Now, to give them credit, the Pharisees give Jesus one last chance, right? So in verse 38, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Now, what were the Pharisees asking for? I mean, after all, Jesus had done a lot of signs. He raised the dead. Demon possessed the blind and the mute man. What more did they want? Maybe the Pharisees wanted an even greater sign. Stop the sun. Or, you know, make the sun go away. Or uh, make an eclipse. Oh, you know, something like that. Something really big and cosmic. Now, as we've been reading through Matthew chapter 1 to 11, we realize that Jesus does not do miracles on demand, right? This is not like Jesus Netflix, right? You know, you just plug in, I want this miracle, it happens, right? Jesus does miracles out of compassion, right? If, if Jesus is compassionate towards someone, he will do the miracle. If that person has faith, Jesus will do the miracle. Jesus doesn't do miracles out of skepticism. But he says that he will do one great miracle. The greatest miracle that he will show, which is three days in the ground, and three days after three days he will come out. Just like three days Jonah was in the belly of a big fish, and then he came up again. Now, what is this last miracle showing? He's showing that Jesus is greater than Jonah. Because which is harder? Three days in the fish and then come out of the fish or three days dead in the bowels of the earth and come out of the earth. Surely three days dead in the earth and coming out alive is harder than being three days alive in the fish and coming out. And the whole point of this section is that Jesus is greater not just than Jonah, but he's even greater than King Solomon. And the point here is 
both the audience and the people of Jonah's time and the people and audience of Solomon's time repented at their preaching. And Jesus' point here at the very end is that it is not enough to be astonished by Jesus, but you need to repent. Because one greater than Jonah is here and one greater than Solomon is here. Repent at the coming of Jesus. Now, I think that there is one application that I want to talk about here. I remember when I was working uh, in Hewlett-Packard, I had a friend of mine who was a Christian, and he always was asking people to uh, visit his church, and the way he would invite people to church, including myself, would be, come to my church, you know, because in my church, we always have lots of miracles. We have lots of healings and things like that happening very regularly. So I asked him one day, because he was actually a very nice guy, we used to talk quite regularly, and I said, no, why do I need to keep going, you know, to keep having all these miracles? And he said, oh, you know, because the more miracles and blessings, uh, you know, more healings you have, the more blessed you are. But I wonder whether that's actually a wicked response to Jesus, because look at what the phrase says. He says, a wicked an adulterous generation asks for signs, right? Ask for miracles. Uh, That's what it says very clearly, right? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. If we already see the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the sign. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we got Jesus healing the demon-possessed man who is blind and mute, but what is the ultimate sign? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a sign. To keep demanding more and more signs every week, every year, every month, more and more healings, more miracles. It's actually not a sign of faith, but actually a sign of unfaithfulness. Because the sign has already been given, but you're still demanding more and more signs. So we don't need an ultimate sign, right? I don't, we, we, we don't need more signs. We already have the sign. The sign points to who Jesus is. That's all you need. But the last section actually to me is the most personally uh, frightening because I always remember this when I first became a Christian and I pondered upon this for a long time, right? In verse 43, it says, When an unpure, impure spirit comes out of a person... It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And this is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, within the context of what just happened, Jesus' point is very clear. So I'm, imagine I'm the person who was blind and mute and demon-possessed. Right? Jesus comes, Jesus casts out the demon, he exercises the demon, I can see, I can speak. But what Jesus is saying is, when that spirit leaves me, the spirit is sort of floating around in desolate places, right? That's what it says there. It goes through arid places seeking rest. Can't find any rest. The spirit then can come back into me once Jesus has left, right? Once the spirit of God has left. 
And that's the warning that Jesus is making. Because if the world is Satan's house, Satan's domain, right? then what causes you to be free from the spirit, in a sense, is the presence of Jesus in your life. Because without the stronger man, right, without the stronger person, without the spirit of God in me, I do not have the protection from the strong person. Right, think very clearly, right? If this is the domain, this is the house of Satan, and I'm living here, I'm one of the possessions. The only reason I'm not, not the possession of Satan anymore is because Jesus, the stronger man, has taken me away. He's rescued me from Satan. But you notice that Jesus takes uh, this application to the individual and he applies it to the generation. He says, this is how it will be for this wicked generation. So what Jesus is saying is, he's coming into the world with the power of the Spirit of God, brings in the kingdom of God. But now that he's gone up and left, unless the people accept Jesus and repent, repent and accept Jesus and have the Holy Spirit, then actually when Jesus leaves again, Satan will come and reclaim what he already lost in the beginning. So when you think about what this parable is saying, or not, it's not really a parable, but what, it's, what Jesus is saying at a deeper level, it is a very grave warning. Right? Because there is no neutrality in this battle or the struggle. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have the Spirit of God then the strong man of this world, Satan, will come and he will take you back and it will be worse than before. Now, as we understand what Jesus is saying here, then it's a cause of, well, before I became a Christian, it's a cause of great fear, right? Because you realize that when you see life in the way that Jesus sees it, you need Jesus and the Spirit of God to protect you from the strong man of this world. Right? You, need to, you can't sit on the fence anymore. You have to make a decision. Am I with Jesus? Am I with the Spirit of God? Am I in the kingdom of God or am I out? Because sitting on the fence is being outside the kingdom of God in the house and domain of Satan. But as a Christian, I can read this and I feel great confidence. Right? Because part of... I think talking to some Christians is they don't feel the confidence and the power of Jesus Christ. So they're scared by a lot of things, you know. They go to a hotel room and then they feel like, oh, you know, uh, it's a bit haunted or spirit. Then, you know, they, they need some person to come and do all this stuff to consecrate the room. You know, they, they put holy water on the, on the four corners of the room and things like that. But actually, when you read this passage, when you have Jesus Christ, why are you scared of all these things? Why are you scared of all these things? The stronger man, the, king, the, 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 the kingdom of God, the spirit of God is already here. Why are you scared of all these things? You do not understand the power of Jesus Christ and the stronger person that he is against the powers of this world. So in conclusion, um, before I was a Christian, I had a friend of mine, an Indonesian friend of mine in university. And you know, he was a really uh, 
cool Indonesian guy. Like, you know, like some of the Indonesians are pretty cool. Right? I think his parents were quite wealthy. He used to smoke all the time, his garam cigarettes. And then, uh, you know, he was pretty urban. Um, then he told me once, before I was Christian, we were chatting one night. I can't remember, maybe he was drinking something as well. And uh, he was saying, you know, he said that actually he believes in spirits. I was like, oh, you do? I said, well, I would have never thought so. You look like such a you know, secular urban person. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, in my father's house, there is a, a, a um, sort of a shrine thing. So his father's a very successful businessman. His father said, oh, I'm going away for a long business trip. Look after this shrine. Well, you know, knowing my friend, right, he can't even look after his, uh, his, his, his dormitory room, right? It's a mess anyway. And so he didn't do anything. He didn't clean it up. Doing it. Then he said, actually, after a week or two, he felt like this dark shadow had come over him. He was like, he was wearing dark glasses all the time. Everything was dark. He said, you couldn't see anything. He felt this great oppression over him. And I remember, you know, I was getting goosebumps listening to him, right? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. Anyway, so then his father came back a couple of weeks later and he told his father what was happening. He said, oh, no. So he brought this bomo in and then uh, they had to do all these things and then uh, the, the, the dark cloud went away from him. So after listening to that, I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's true, you know. Maybe really there are forces at work that we're unaware of. But I don't really need my friend, my Indonesian friend, to tell me all these things. Right? Because when you look at the passage, this is the way that Jesus presents the reality of this world. This is not just all material. Right? It's not just all physical. There is a spiritual battle at work. You either belong in the kingdom of God, where the stronger man has come, and the Spirit of God is at work to defend you, or you are part of the kingdom of Satan, the house of Satan, the domain of Satan, and you are the possession of Satan. So as we look at this passage, I hope that it's really an encouragement for you, if you are sitting on the fence, uh, to not sit on the fence anymore. Because there is no sitting on the fence. Uh, sitting on the fence is an illusion. right? You, you're, you're actually part of the kingdom of Satan at the end. But if you are a Christian and you have Jesus, then I hope that this passage is really a great source of encouragement. Because he is the stronger man who has come into this world. And that you do belong to the kingdom of God. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Okay, Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really want to pray that you will help us to, to see the realities that Jesus is talking about. That is not enough to be astonished and impressed by the great miracles of Jesus. But what the miracles point to is that Jesus is greater than King David. He is greater than the temple. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is greater than Jonah. He is greater than Solomon. And indeed, we should repent, for he is the son of David, everlasting Christ. Dear Father, we pray before you, and we ask that we, if there are some of us here today who are sitting on the fence and are yet undecided in whether to accept Jesus, that they will see the great danger that they are in, that they belonged to the house and domain of Satan, and that they are his possessions, and that without Jesus Christ and your spirit within them, they are easy pickings. 
But dear Father, we pray that as Jesus comes, we will see that he comes to save us and to bring us out of the domain from Satan. And we pray for us as well that for those of us who believe in Jesus, we will be filled with such great confidence because Jesus is the stronger man. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.